Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to Come Follow Me Insights by Book of Mormon Central. Today, Alma 8 through 12. We encourage you to check out our free Scripture Plus app. It's a study aid with lots of great supplemental resources, great videos, images, and supplemental materials that can enhance your study. So, today's lesson, we're going to be focusing on Ammonihah. This particular city is fascinating in the whole mission of Alma the Younger. Remember, he gave up the judgment seat, he's no longer the chief judge, and he's He's gone on this mission to try to increase the, the level of righteousness among the Nephites. So you'll notice that back in chapters 5 and 6, he started at the center of the land. He began in Zarahemla. Then in 7, he went out to Gideon and had a great experience with the people in Gideon. Then he came home, and in the beginning of chapter 8, it tells you that uh, he returned in verse 1 to his own house at Zarahemla to rest himself from the labors which he had performed. So he's, he's getting some downtime, some relaxation, and then in chapter 8 he begins again. And in verse 4, he began to teach the people in the land of Melech according to the holy order of God by which he had been called. So check this out. You get chapter 8, verse, you know, 3 through 6, He's in Melech, and look at the people. Verse 5, it came to pass that the people came to him throughout all the borders of the land, which was by the wilderness side, because we're west of the river Sidon, out on the west by the borders of the wilderness, and they were baptized throughout all the land, so that when he had finished his work at Melech, he departed thence and traveled three days' journey on the north of the land of Melech and came to the city which is called Ammonihah. Now look at this. So you get chapter 8, where he leaves Melech in verse 6, comes to Ammonihah, and you're going to be in Ammonihah all the way through chapter 15. That's a lot of column space. That's a lot of scripture pages for, for the city of Ammonihah. Notice this pattern. Mormon, looking down the corridor of time, says, hmm, what do they need? What is going to be the most beneficial to them in the last in, in the latter days. What happens here, 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 or here, and in what proportions? You'll notice what we got the vast majority of, of Mormon's editing effort for. It's what happened in Ammonihah. You got three, four verses max in Melech where largely the people are not members of the church, so these, they're, they're not in the, in the gospel, but they come in huge, huge numbers to be baptized. And Mormon gives you a small handful. He doesn't give you any detail. And we're sitting here saying, come on, Mormon, there's great success happening in Melech and you're not giving us any of those details. I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that Mormon looks down the quarter of time at our day and says, you know, it, it, it would be nice to tell these stories that are happening in Melech, but that's not what I'm largely seeing happening in the latter days. 
everything you gain out of this story is is gained at great cost and and in some cases incredible suffering um, on a lot of people's part. I'm thinking Mormon saw our day and said, hmm, you people in the latter days, you need to know what Alma had to go through and what Amulek had to go through in Ammonihah as opposed to just celebrate the wonderful things that happen in Melech because it probably – Melech would be an exception for our time period and this would be the rule. So, think about this. <clears throat> what if you were serving a full-time mission for the church and there was a particular area in your mission that was notoriously bad? Nobody wanted to serve there, and when anybody got assigned to serve there, it was like, oh no, kiss of death, poor you, good luck. Look at chapter 8, verse 9. What if you got a description of a particular area that looked like this? Now Satan had gotten great holds upon the, hold upon the hearts of the people of the city of, fill in the blank with whatever name, in this case Ammonihah, therefore they would not hearken unto the words of Alma. You're saying to yourself, well then, there's nothing I can do, why waste my time here? Because Satan has such a great hold. Notice you've got all of this awful description of how their hearts are bound by Satan, so it's, it's a pretty bad outlook on the people, and then notice the very next word in verse 10. Notice how verse 10 opens? Nevertheless, which we've talked about before, always the greater. Put more emphasis over here. De-emphasize, not de-emphasize, but put the greater emphasis here in this cause-counter-effect relationship. So, it's a rough spot to serve, but in spite of that, we're going to put greater emphasis on what comes here. Every mission president the world over would pray for all of their missionaries to be like verse 10. Nevertheless, Alma labored much in the spirit, wrestling with God in mighty prayer that he would pour out his spirit upon the people who were in the city, that he would also grant that he might baptize them under repentance. I love that. I love that faithful approach. And you're thinking, oh good, this is great. There's only one problem. Look at the first word of verse 11. In spite of a missionary's best efforts or a leader's best efforts or a mom or a dad, their best efforts, there's still this thing called agency, and verse 11 is all about agency being used in the wrong direction. Nevertheless, the people in Ammonihah had hardened their hearts, saying unto him, Behold, we know that thou art Alma, and you're just the high priest. You're no longer our chief judge. You have no authority over us, so we're not going to listen to you. So you saw this, there's a really rough place, Nevertheless, Alma worked really hard, he, he put his whole soul into this and poured his heart out to God. Nevertheless, the people rejected him anyway. There are many uh, – I teach, I teach uh, many, many students at BYU every year, and occasionally I'll, I'll find out from some of them who have returned from missions um, that they feel like they were a failure on the mission because they'll say things like, I, I didn't baptize anyone, or I only baptized, and then they'll give me some really low number and say, I don't feel like I accomplished what I really should have been able to accomplish in that time. I love the fact that here in verse 9, 10, and 11, God is teaching a principle that you cannot control people's agency, 
and you can't base your success on how other people choose to use their agency. Alma did everything he could, and the people still chose to reject him. At which point, look at, look at verse 13, now when the people had said this and withstood all his words, and not just withstood him, look at this next part, and reviled him, and spit upon him, and caused that he should be cast out of their city, he departed thence and took his journey towards the city which was called Aaron. Uh, can you picture the body language? By the way, he's been fasting many days because nobody's feeding him. Can you picture the physical appearance of Alma, the spiritual rejection and dejection as he's spit upon, reviled, kicked out of the city, as he now leaves and starts walking away, this, this weighed-down soul? Now look at verse 14. It came to pass that while he was journeying thither, being weighed down with sorrow, waiting through much tribulation and anguish of soul, because of the wickedness of the people who were in the city of Ammonihah, it came to pass that while Alma was thus weighed down with sorrow, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him, saying, Blessed art thou, Alma, therefore lift up thy head and rejoice. So here he is weighed down, and he's in the depths of, of prophetic despair, having been totally rejected in Ammonihah, and then the angel comes and says, lift up your head and rejoice. It's okay. Uh, you've been faithful in keeping the commandments. You did everything you could. And then the angel introduces himself to him in a different way. He says, remember? Do you, do you remember me? We're old friends, Alma. <laughs> I'm the one who was sent to turn you from that path of wickedness when you were off with the four sons of Mosiah many years ago. Now I get to come to you again. Isn't this interesting, the contrast? The first time this angel came to Alma, he's puffed up. He's at the height of his popularity among the people. He, everything that he's doing, the world is applauding, and he's, he's on cloud nine, and the angel comes and bursts that bubble and brings him down into the depths of humility and three days of the pains of a damned soul using his own words, are, are what follows. Now you get the opposite. Now Alma is in the depths of despair. He's downtrodden, he's more than humble, and now the angel comes, lift up your head, rejoice. He lifts him up. There's a phrase in the scriptures and a concept in the scriptures that repeats itself in, in a variety of ways that the lofty shall be brought down and made low, and the valleys shall be lifted up. The low shall be exalted. He who exalteth himself shall be abased, and he who humbleth himself shall be exalted. It comes in a variety of ways throughout the scriptures, and here you get a, a perfect example of this reunion between uh, Alma and this particular angel. And by the way, we always put the emphasis, don't we, on, wow, isn't that amazing? Alma got to see an angel. I have to believe that, that in heaven and in the spirit world that it's equally as amazing for these angels to get to be the one to have the assignment or, or get the opportunity, the calling, to go down and be that heavenly messenger 
or people. Can you imagine this particular angel being told, you get to be Alma the Younger's tutor? That's remarkable. Can you picture Angel Moroni? You get to be the one to be the personal tutor of Joseph Smith, Jr., the prophet and seer of the Lord in the restoration, the, 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 the dispensation of the fullness of times. I, I personally think Moroni was just as excited on that occasion as, as was Joseph in this, in this incredible coming together experience, and, and you get it here as well, where heaven meets earth, this angel comes down. Look at the, the command in verse 16. Behold, I am sent to command me that thou command thee that thou return to the city of Ammonihah and preach again unto the people of the city. Yea, preach unto them, yea, say unto them, except they repent, the Lord God will destroy them. Have to pause here for a minute. Let's play uh, shoulder angel and shoulder devil for a minute. How hard would it be for a devil to, to put in some pretty discouraging words into Alma's mind and into his heart right now? You've just been rejected, reviled, spit upon, kicked out, and now an angel says, oh, go back into the city and don't go into the city and declare glad tidings of great joy. Go back in and tell them, unless they repent, they are going to be utterly destroyed. Can you imagine the, the thoughts that might have crossed Alma's mind, placed there by the, by the devil, to say, oh yeah, that's going to be effective, that's going to be popular, you're going to get a lot of followers now, Alma, they're really going to love you, or really? Why would the Lord send you back in there, Alma? Weren't you already there? Didn't you already tell them that if they didn't repent they were going to be destroyed? Why would God want you to go again? You can see all of these discouraging things that could be placed in a, in a person's mind. Now let's play the angel for a moment. Give me one good reason why Alma should go back into Ammonihah. All you need is one. It's because God commanded it. And I love, I love this next verse, uh, these next two verses. Um, actually, skip down to verse 18. Now it came to pass that after Alma had received his message from the angel of the Lord, he returned speedily to the land of Ammonihah, and he entered the city by another way, by the way which is on the south of the city. He's been fasting many days, he's exhausted, he's been rejected, the angel comes and says, now go back in and preach this really, really difficult message, and he says, okay, and he returned speedily. I love that principle. I love that idea that I can be called to do things that are really, really hard, or inconvenient, or not ideal, but if I will respond to the promptings of the Lord quickly and do them quickly, then I'm far more likely to, to receive the help. Alma, in this case, back to our story in the scriptures, Alma comes into the city having no idea where, what he's actually going to do, and then he runs into Amulek on the way in. And Amulek has seen a vision from, from an angel as well and brings Alma home, feeds him, takes care of him, and then this opens the door, sets the stage for the great preaching that is going to begin in chapter 9.
Okay, let's turn into Alma chapter 9, and let's listen to how Alma structures and lays the foundation for what he's trying to teach the people. So, Alma's speech is understood in a covenantal context. I want you to pay attention to certain words that appear in, in Alma's speaking. So if you take, for example, verses 8 through 18, look for words like, how does he use the word forget? Or the word remember? He talks about deliverance and mercy and promises. All this has to do with covenantal language. And what he's getting the people to focus on, he says, you know, could, can you really forget all the incredible deeds of deliverance that God has done to show his mercy and his love and his salvation for you? He has all these promises that he's made. And you should remember these things. And actually, you should put this word back up here. The order of the ordinances in the gospel, like baptism and sacrament and temple covenants, are invitations for us to remember that God delivers us in mercy and fulfills promises. There is an order for the covenant path. And I'll just read a couple of the verses here, and I want you to, to listen to how Alma's trying to teach this orderly, orderliness that God has in the plan of salvation, and that the covenants are the invitation to experience the beauty of God's order. So let's take a look at verse 8. Behold, all you wicked and perverse generation, how have you forgotten the tradition of your fathers? Yea, how soon you have forgotten the commandments of God. If you forget the commandments of God, you cannot prosper in the land. And I think we all know what happens in Ammonihah. They get fully destroyed in a single day, which they said, we wouldn't even believe it if you told us that would happen. Verse 9, Do ye not remember that our father Lehi was brought out of Jerusalem by the hand of God? Do you not remember that they were all led by him through the wilderness? So again, we want you to remember these stories of salvation, of deliverance, because they're signs and symbols of God's mercy, that God will fulfill his promises to the faithful. And what Amos trying to lay out is, we all have the same access to those promises. The people of Ammonihah, who were just in the grasp of like this terrible wickedness, had the ability to receive the same promises if they would just remember and not forget all the good that God had done for them and not forget that they had duties to keep the commandments. Verse 10, have you forgotten so soon how many times he delivered our fathers out of the hands of their enemies? Verse 11, if it had not been for his matchless power and his mercy and his long suffering towards us, we should unavoidably have been cut off from the face of the earth. Uh, verse 12, and this is the crux of what Am Alma is trying to get at. You are commanded to repent. Except you repent, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. If you don't repent, you will be strewn, okay, destroyed. Destroyed means fully strewn away, thrown away. Verse 13, do you not remember the words which he spake unto Lehi? And this is one of the core messages of the Book of Mormon. And it's actually a summary of our covenantal obligations to God and his children. Here it is. Inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, 
ye shall prosper in the land. Inasmuch as ye will not keep my commandments, ye shall be cut off for the presence of the Lord. And that's actually what it means to prosper, is to have God's presence. If you don't keep the commandments, you do not have God's presence, and you are therefore not prospering. Now, I want to give you two invitations. One, I want you to think about times in your life where you have remembered the great deeds of deliverance God has done for you, and you've experienced his mercy and seen his promises. And back in Alma 5, he asked us, can we remember these things? We should do that again on a regular basis. The sacrament is an invitation for us to remember the great deeds God has done for us. And we recommit ourselves to offering our hearts and our love to God and to be fully committed on the covenant path to keep the commandments. I also encourage you to look at the rest of this chapter and look at the promises that Alma reinstates around the Lamanites. You know, we've spent all this time focusing on the Nephites, the good guys, and the Lamanites always seem to be the bad guys for the most part of the Book of Mormon. There are some exceptions. And it's interesting here that Alma lays out that the Lamanites, they are actually off the covenant path because their ancient forefathers had misinformed them, miseducated them, taking them off the path. And so these descendants didn't know any better. And at some future day, and that is actually happening right now in the latter days, those descendants will be invited back in and they can have a fullness of the promises that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Nephi, Jacob, Enos in the Book of Mormon, and others. So Alma is trying to help the people of Ammonihah know there is a pathway of covenants, of order, that you are invited in to get on that path and to demonstrate to God your faithfulness, and then you get the fullness of everything you want, all the prosperity. And we'll see in future chapters that they were focused on the wrong things. They defined their own prosperity, not in the ways of God, but in the ways of men. So when Alma finishes his, uh, his speech with the people in chapter 9, then it's Amulek's turn, this second witness. This is the difference between the first time Alma went into Ammonihah and the second time, is now he's no longer alone. You get a second witness that God has prepared to stand next to him, Amulek, and Amulek introduces himself as, look, I, I'm a man of no small reputation. He gives his background being a descendant of Amminadi, the guy who interpreted the writing of the finger of God on the wall of the temple, that we don't have that story in the book, unfortunately. Uh, and then he, then he gives us a glimpse into something that is very, very applicable to many of us. He tells us in verse 5 that he never had known much of the ways of the Lord and his mysteries and his marvelous power. And then in verse 6 of chapter 10 he says, Nevertheless, I did harden my heart, for I was called many times and I would not hear. Therefore, I knew concerning these things, yet I would not know. The implication being, oh, I knew better, but I had convinced myself otherwise because I wanted to keep doing what I wanted to do. Uh, again, one of the phrases used by uh, President Thomas S. Monson repeatedly uh, back many, many years ago, he, I, in an Enzyme article, he said, why do I do what I do when I know what I know? It kind of describes what's going on here with Amulek. I, I know better. I knew, 
but I, but I wouldn't know, so to speak, because it was more convenient. And thus, uh, he, he begins talking to his people, he lives in Ammonihah, his people about his own conversion experience and explaining the, the reasons why they're struggling and he starts getting in, in a bit of an argument with some of the lawyers in Ammonihah and if we turn the page over to chapter 11, this heightens and then you get Mormon doing something very strange. In chapter 11, he breaks up the storytelling, starting in, in verse uh, 5, and he says, now let me give you the, the reckoning of the Nephite money. You'll notice it never uses the word coin or coinage system in the Book of Mormon. Coins aren't invented by this time. So this is their monetary system. This is the weights and measures of their gold and silver, the way they're, they're uh, taking care of economic things. My, my dad was a banker. This was his favorite part in the entire Book of Mormon. We'd read it all the time in family home evening. Yeah. And you had to memorize these, right? Yeah. Take a test on them. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to spend a ton of time on covering all of these, these names of their gold and their silver and the different values. Mormon gives you extensive uh, descriptions of their monetary system, um, and there are a variety of reasons why he probably did that. The most obvious one is probably to help us ga gain a little bit of context for what's about to happen in the story. So, oh, and by the way, the lawyer that they're interacting with here, his name is Yezrim. Uh, one of the title, or one of the names of the silver in verse 12, and Ezram of silver was as great as four senums. This one's really interesting. What Tyler's pointing out, in Hebrew, the word Zay can mean it or he or he of. So you have this guy named Zezram, and his name in Hebrew may mean he of the silver Ezram, which is apparently the second highest monetary value in the Nephite system in, in, in silver. So it's a little funny, this guy who's so focused on money, this actually may be kind of a code word, it may not have been his real name, that Mormon's like, oh yeah, that silver money filthy lucre guy, or Zezram, all he cared about was the things of mankind. Now having said that, this is interesting because we as a people do this all the time. If you were to meet Zezram today, would you see him as a money-grubbing, deceptive guy who at the at the time as a lawyer this look of I'm going to trap you or would you see him as one of the greatest success stories in the whole Book of Mormon? Um, so he's named Zezrum but he becomes uh, a man of great power, a man of God, not a man of money. So as we move forward in this story and you're you're reading what he did, be careful in your own mind not to keep him held hostage to his past, because his past is pretty rough. Give him, like Alma the Younger, his companion, an opportunity to move beyond those past uh, issues and become this, this glorious uh, disciple of Christ moving forward. So, what happens is in the next, next part of the story, verse 22, uh, is Zezrum is going to hold out six aunties of silver 
and offer them to Amulek and say, if you'll deny God, I'll give you these six aunties of silver. Now, if Mormon hadn't spent some time giving us their monetary system, that would have meant absolutely nothing to us. Here are six aunties of silver. We know nothing about that. But we do know now, I'm not going to bore you to death with the math, what we know is he's holding a major chunk of change. It represents 42 days' wage for a judge in their society. That's a lot of money. And he's saying all you have to do is deny the existence of a supreme being. Bottom of verse 22, now look at 23. Now Amulek said, O thou child of hell, why tempt ye me? Now Amulek may or may not have read the book How to Win Friends and Influence People <laughs> by this time, but he's not. He's uh, not beating around the bush here. Then look at verse 24. Believest thou that there is no God? I say unto you, Nay, thou knowest that there is a God, but thou lovest that lucre more than him. You have made that money in your hand become your God. That money motivates you more than God motivates you at this point in your life. And you've lied, Zeezrom. You said you were going to give me that, but in your heart you've said you're just using that as bait to get me to say something and then you're going to withhold it. Now look at the, uh, the next part of the dialogue. Verse 26, Zeezrom said unto him, Thou sayest there is a true and, true and living God? And Amulek said, Yea, there is a true and living God. Now this is interesting. Zeezrom said, Is there more than one God? And he answered, No. Now Zeezrom said unto him again, How knowest thou these things? And the answer Amulek gives is, An angel hath made them known unto me. This just happened very recently for him. That's how I know them different than Alma's response about the Holy Ghost and fasting for many days in a previous uh, lesson. Look at verse 32, Zeezrom said again, who is he that shall come? Is it the Son of God? And he said, yea. And Zeezrom said, said again, shall he save his people in their sins? And Amulek answered and said, he shall not, for it is impossible for him to deny his word. Now watch what happens. This happens all the time today. Okay, you, you saw the dialogue here. Now, Zeezrom, the lawyer, turns to the group, and in verse 35, he said to the people, See that you remember these things, for he said that there is but one God, and he saith that the Son of God shall come, but he shall not save his people. Can you see what happened? He took what Amulek said and parsed it out of context to use it against him. He shall not save his people. That is not what Amulek said. Amulek was asked, will he save his people in their sins? And he said, no, he won't. So now, look at verse 37. Here's Amulek jumping back in again. I say unto you again that he cannot save them in their sins. Oh, the power of a preposition, right? He says, will he save them in their sins? And the answer is no. God cannot save us in our sins. The eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die and it'll be well with you because God loves you doctrine that Nehor had taught, that's a false doctrine. So look how he clarifies it. Uh, no unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of heaven, therefore how can you be saved except you inherit the kingdom of heaven? You cannot be saved in your sins. The word we would use here instead of in 
is God's Son will come to save us from our sins. Uh, Notice that he goes on to say in verse 40, he shall come into the world to redeem his people and he shall take upon them, upon him, the transgressions of those who believe on his name. Now verse 42, things things shift really, really powerfully to a big eternal context here. He's going to talk about two deaths here. You get the physical death and you get a spiritual death that are going to be discussed by Amulek really powerfully. Uh, Verse 42, now there is a death which is called a temporal death, and the death of Christ shall loose the bands of this temporal death, and all shall be raised from this temporal death. The word temporal comes from the root tempo, which means time. There's time attached to it. It's not eternal. It's temporal. It'll end. It'll pass. So the physical death is going to pass. It's temporal. It's got a clock ticking. It's not going to last forever. And he describes in this is this has to be one of the best places in all the scripture to describe the resurrection. This physical resurrection from the grave. The spirit and the body shall be reunited again in its perfect form. Both limb and joint shall be restored to its proper frame, even as we now are at this time and we shall be brought to stand before God. Hmm. We're going to be brought out of the grave, overcoming the physical death, and the spiritual death, the separation from God's presence, that's going to be overcome as well. So we're going to be brought and arraigned before God. There's going to be a judgment experience. We're going to be brought before God, knowing even as we know now, and have a bright recollection of all of our guilt. Now, who gets this? This restoration, overcoming both of these deaths inherited by Adam, cometh to all, both old and young, both bond and free, both male and female, both the wicked and the righteous, and even there shall not so much as a hair of their heads be lost, but everything shall be restored to its perfect frame. Notice, will be brought and be arraigned before the bar of Christ the Son and God the Father and the Holy Spirit, which is one eternal God to be judged according to their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. Everyone, good, bad, black, white, bond, free, male, free, everyone will be brought and arraigned before the bar of Christ in the presence of the Father and the Holy Ghost as well, which is one eternal God. Um, isn't it fascinating that you're, you and I are going to be judged according to our works? that Jesus Christ was already judged according to your works, and he was found guilty, and he was punished to the full extent of the law. And so now it's our opportunity to come and stand before the one who already knows what it's like to be judged of our works. There's nobody that you would rather have be your judge than Jesus Christ because of how perfectly he understands you and me and what we're going through. Now, Amulek finishes there, and then Alma jumps back up in 12, and now he's going to take that doctrine and take it even deeper. Look at, look at the way he describes this experience here, overcoming Adam's spiritual death that we've inherited from the fall of Adam and Eve as we're brought back into the presence of God 
Look at verse 14. Our words will condemn us. Our works will condemn us. We shall not be found spotless, and our thoughts will also condemn us. And in this awful state we shall not dare to look up to our God, and we would fain be glad if we could command the rocks and the mountains to fall upon us to hide us from his presence. But this cannot be. We must come forth and stand before him in his glory and in his power and his might and majesty and dominion. If you're marking the attributes of God, verse 15 is loaded with characteristic traits of God. Now verse 16, now behold I say unto you, then cometh a death, even a second death, which is a spiritual death. Then is a time that whosoever dieth in his sins as to a temporal death shall also die a spiritual death, he shall die as to things pertaining unto righteousness. What he's saying is, if you've gotten here and you've totally, you people in Ammonihah, you've totally rejected this covenant that, that Christ has offered to you and you've turned your back on him, you're going to be brought back into the presence of God, but then you're going to suffer a second death, a spiritual death again. You're going to be taken out of God's presence again because of uh, the decisions that you've made. Now look at verse uh, 20, Antiona, a chief ruler there in uh, Ammonihah, he comes and he says, well, wait, you're saying everyone's going to be resurrected. I don't believe that because the scriptures say that God placed cherub on a flaming sword to protect the way to the tree of life so that Adam and Eve couldn't partake of the fruit of the tree of life and live forever. Are you seeing how, once again, we take things out of context and only share a part of the, the scripture or part of the story? To, to establish belief, this is very dangerous because then Alma goes on to explain, no, if they had instantly partaken of the fruit of the tree of life, they would have lived forever in their sins. They needed a period of time, a probationary state, to be able to repent. So we enter that probationary state in verse 24 as a time to prepare to meet God, a time to prepare for that endless state. That's what the, the plan of redemption is all about. Now, as you turn the page over, that he's going to explain more of this doctrine of the fall and the redemption and how angels come and reveal all of these things. Uh, look at verse 32. Therefore God gave unto them commandments after having made un known unto them the plan of redemption. God teaches the plan so that you can see the, the, the grand why and the who and the how. And then, once you, once you understand that, then he gives you the commandments, which are that covenant connection to say, you've seen the blueprints, now let me give you the step-by-step -step instructions of how to get from point A to point Z. Because just because you've seen the vision isn't going to make it so you get there without a lot of guidance and directions, your, your spiritual GPS so to speak, along the way. Look at verse 33, but God did call on men in the name of his Son, as being the plan of redemption, saying, if you will repent, harden not your hearts, then will I have mercy upon you through mine only begotten Son. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the mediator, the intercessor, the go-between, not just for us talking to God, Verse 33, but God did call on men in the name of his Son. We call upon God in the name of his Son, and God calls upon us in the name of his Son. 
Jesus is the messenger of the covenant. He is the go-between. He is the one who embodies everything God wants for us, in, not just in our lives here but in eternities. This covenant path isn't just for mortality, it's for eternity. And here's Alma preaching this idea, the plan of redemption is so simple. You could put it into two words, trust Jesus. So it's our hope and our prayer for all of us as we move forward that we will not puff ourselves up needing to be humbled and abased as we go forward in life, but that we'll stay humble, that we'll call upon God in the name of his Son and listen as God calls upon us in the name of his Son, that we'll, as our prophet has repeatedly said, learn how to hear him and follow and hearken and obey. We hope you can feel the joy and the excitement of the gospel, how beautiful the plan is, how beautiful upon the feet of the mountains are those who declare glad tidings, and we find that here in the scriptures. We love you. We encourage you to be close to those practicing social distancing that matter to you, that you can embrace them in the love of the gospel, and as you do, you will find that God's truth will be vibrant in your lives and you'll feel the joy that he has designed for his saints. Know that you're loved.